Open up your Bibles with me now to Romans chapter 4, and we are trucking right along in the book of Romans, hitting chapter 4 already this morning. It shouldn't take us more than two years or so. We'll be to chapter 10. No, we won't take that long. But as we've been going through the book of Romans, Paul has been unfolding for us this great subject of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and he is not anywhere near finished exploring those riches that the gospel has to offer us. He, he is not in a hurry to get off of this topic. We shouldn't be in a hurry to get off of it either. This is such a glorious and beautiful truth. So let's read together now from Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast in, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious treasure that you have given to us, that through it we hear the voice of our God, through your spirits working by your word. We have been called from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that our, our blind eyes can be made open, our deaf ears made to hear. Lord, even that which is dead can be made to live. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would accomplish your good work through your word this morning. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, everyone who has ever been inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame has one major thing in common. They've all been around baseball an awful lot. There's no one who is inducted into the Hall of Fame who is clueless about baseball and is just hearing about it for the very first time in that moment when they are afforded that, uh, you know, honor. The same is true on a small scale in a high school graduation. If you want to be the valedictorian of your class, even a little class like at Westview High School, before that honor is given, you have to have gotten a lot of A's. In fact, pretty much only A's and nothing else. You have to have worked very hard, years of dedication, years of hard work. And that's how the world works. If you want to be a Hall of Fame athlete, you have to give every part of your life to the pursuit of excellence in that sport. If you want to excel in business, you have to give your life to working very, very hard and dedicating yourself to it. 
We've never heard of a Grammy-winning singer who, at the moment of receiving their Grammy, was actually tone-deaf. Actually, I'm not sure that's true anymore. No, I think that's actually happening a lot. Disregard. This is how the world works. This is how the world works. And so think of how counterintuitive the gospel is. Think of how counterintuitive justification by faith alone is. We are told in the gospel that to be found with God's own righteous status, there is only one way to get there, and it is not hard work and dedication. It is not by amassing uh, amazing amounts of knowledge. It is not through our merit. It is not through our goodness. No, the only way to, to get there, to be found with God's righteous perfection, is through absolutely no works of our own beforehand. God's righteous status is received by faith alone. And every single person who receives this gift is unworthy of it. It would be like being named the valedictorian without ever passing a single class in high school. You got F's in everything and somehow given that honor. That's not the way the world works. It makes, it makes no sense in the world whatsoever, but that is the nature of salvation. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, and this is, this declaration is the very center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now imagine Paul preaching this message. This message is no less scandalous in his day than it is in ours. Imagine him preaching this, not just in his world, but in the Jewish context, going from synagogue to synagogue across the Roman Empire, preaching the message of justification, right standing with God based on God's grace alone through faith alone and no works of our own. Paul would know first hand just how offensive that message is, just how hostile the Jewish heart is to the gospel. The Judaism of Paul's day was built on boasting. And now Paul is preaching a message that dismantles boasting. The, the Judaism of Paul's day was built on, we were chosen by God Because we're righteous, because we're good people, because we're the best people. Again, as we've said many times, in their mind, there's only two kinds of people in the whole world, us and them, and we're the good guys. So you can imagine how much they hate this gospel message that, that tears all of that apart, that shuts the door to that kind of arrogance, but it's not just the Jewish heart that hates the gospel, it's the human heart that hates the gospel. And so Paul's going to give his Jewish opponents and us an example to prove that all men must be justified by faith alone. The example that he's going to choose is a man that the Jews revere as their physical and spiritual father, the greatest of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham. So chapter 4 now, Paul's going to zero in. Now that, he has, now that he has made us clear the depths of the sin and depravity of the human heart, our helplessness to save ourselves, God's grace and mercy and justifying by faith alone. Now Paul's going to zero in in chapter 4 on the man Abraham, showing how Abraham illustrates that justification is never on the basis of our works. That's what we're going to be looking at in these first eight verses this morning. As he goes through chapter four, we're going to see that justification is also not through circumcision. It's also never through the law. 
It's always a gift of grace through faith, and it has always been a gift of grace through faith. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at these first eight verses, as Paul shows that at no point, at no point in history has justification been on the basis of our works. So look at verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, the Jews of Paul's day actually believed that Abraham was justified, that Abraham was made right with God on the basis of his own righteous character. In other words, they think Abraham uh, was justified by God because of his own good works and not because of faith. They believed that Abraham was the most righteous person alive on the earth, and that's why God singled him out and chose him. Even though Abraham lived 600 years before the law of God was given, before the old covenant was established through Moses, the rabbi still taught Abraham was saved by law-keeping. We see this in, in several of the Jewish apocryphal writings. In the prayer of Manasseh, it says that Abraham was sinless. In the book of Jubilees, we read, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Some rabbinical writings say that Abraham was so inherently good that he began serving the Lord wholeheartedly with all himself at the age of three, which of course is not true at all. When God called Abraham, he was a pagan, just like all the other pagans. He was from Ur of Chaldea, a thoroughly pagan city. Abraham went, but when God called him, at the moment God called him, was an idolater who worshipped the moon god. He wasn't a perfect person who'd been serving God since he was three. Ecclesiasticus, also known as the wisdom of Sirach, says, No one has been found like Abraham in glory. Abraham had obeyed the law perfectly even before it had been given. This is how the Jewish mind views Abraham. And so when Paul says boasting is excluded because no one is saved by their own righteousness, because our own righteousness is non-existent, but we are only ever saved by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, given as a gift of grace received through faith alone, the Jews would look at Paul and say to him, you are dead wrong. Our father Abraham was justified by works. And since that's the answer Paul had received so many times, and again, what we see in Romans is, since Paul hadn't been able to make it to Rome to to teach those Roman Christians, he has committed to writing what he would teach as he went from place to place, synagogue to synagogue, city to city. And so Paul answers these same opponents that would have challenged him in person in other locations. And Paul says, great, you want to bring up Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. That's what Paul does here in chapter 4. Because Paul knows Abraham doesn't refute the point he's making about there being no boasting in salvation because it comes as a gift of God's grace through faith. Paul knows that Abraham proves that what he's saying is true. So he says, what was gained by Abraham? Literally, the words are, what did Abraham find? What did Abraham discover? Specifically, what is it that Abraham discovered about how to be right with God? How to be justified. Again, justification is a, is a legal term, and it just means declared not guilty, innocent, 
pure, in right standing. So he says, what did Abraham discover about that? And then Paul's going to take their theology to its logical conclusion. You're saying Abraham was righteous all the days of his life, and that's why God picked him. What would it mean if that were true? And he says in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, if Abraham or any other man that has ever lived could be counted as righteous by God on the basis of their own human efforts, then that man would have legitimate grounds for boasting. Some of the glory and salvation would belong to him. So Paul says that's the logical conclusion of your thinking here. You think Abraham played some role in his salvation If that were true, Abraham could boast. And then he slams the door on it. What are his next words? But not before God. In other words, no man has anything to boast about before God. Even Abraham's best deeds appeared before God as filthy rags. He had no righteousness of his own that would commend him to God. There there is nothing a man can do that will merit this favor before God. When we stand before God, we will not be able to boast of what we have done at all. God will not share his glory with another. God says this specifically a number of times, twice in Isaiah, Isaiah 42 and 48, God says, I will not share my glory with anyone. The glory of salvation belongs to him alone. But If we could be saved by any work of our own, any contribution at all that we make to salvation, God would have to share some of his glory. But God has said that he will never do that. So there's a popular teaching. I would say the most popular teaching in the United States when it comes to salvation is essentially this. God does the exact same 99% for all of humanity, everyone that has ever lived, and then we just have to do that last 1%. That's the basic salvation teaching. If that were true, Paul wants to carry that to its logical conclusion, then what's the difference between you and your unsaved neighbor when you stand before God? It's not the 99% that God did, it's what? It's the 1% that you did. That's what separates you from everyone else. And Paul carries that to its logical conclusion and says, then you've got some room for boasting before God in your salvation, and that will never, ever, ever happen. So our works cannot have anything to do with our salvation. It is all of grace because of his will, not ours, because of his work, not ours. And have you noticed that Paul has said this over and over and over, and we're only in chapter 4? He has said this in all kinds of different ways. He has been dismantling any claim we could have to having done something that would lead to our salvation. He has said it over and over which means we have said it over and over over these weeks. And I hope you haven't grown tired of hearing about it. The Holy Spirit has gone to great lengths to make sure we understand this. Paul has gone over this from every possible angle to make sure we understand it. Why does the Holy Spirit care so much that we get this? Why is it so important that we understand that salvation comes by faith alone? Apart from any working, any merit of our own, why is it so important? 
was because there's no truth that Satan hates more than the true doctrine of salvation. Every false religion you could look at in the entire world, except for Christianity, teaches a salvation by human works in some form. But the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. Not the false gospel that tells us to work hard, do the right things, don't do the wrong things, say the right words, respond in the right way. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is the power for salvation. We need the righteousness of God to be given to us because the scripture is clear that we can't get it any other way. And so Paul is working hard to come at this from every angle, to slam the door on every other way and only leave one way open. The only way that works, the way of coming to God on the basis of faith alone, receiving his grace through the means of faith alone. He says in verse 3, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so who is Abraham, this, this great father of the faith? When God called him, he was just a pagan, just an idolater. He was a blasphemer. There was absolutely nothing good in Abraham that would commend him to God, that would make God choose him. It's not as the Jews were teaching that he was the best man in the whole world, and so God picked him. No, that's not true. He wasn't seeking after God. We know that he wasn't seeking after God because Scripture is clear that no man seeks after God. But God was seeking after him. See, that's where our hope's found. It was through the uninfluenced choice of a sovereign God that God reached down to him. That God revealed himself to him. And then we see that Abraham took God at his word and believed Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's the result of Abraham believing God? Paul quotes it here from Genesis 15. It was counted to him as righteousness. Counted, the word logizomai, means to credit, to reckon. It's an accounting term. It's a very important word. Paul's going to use this exact same word five times from verses 3 to 8. This accounting term, the first thing we need to know about it is it deals with reality, not hypotheticals, right? Accounting deals with what's real. It deals with what's concrete. And this, this term means that which we did not possess is credited to our account from another. And so the picture here is you have a bank account with zero dollars, Actually, the real picture is you have infinite debt being levied against your bank account. And someone transfers millions of dollars into your account. It's not wages that you have earned. It is just a gift. That's what it means here, what Paul's saying. That's what this word means. God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and transfers it into the account of the sinner who believes. We haven't done anything to deserve it. We did not earn it. We did not work for it. It is credited purely of God's grace. So he says that this was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Righteousness is being brought into perfect conformity to a standard. 
So, so justification, as we've said week after week, it gives to the believer God's own righteous status. The only way we will ever be accepted by God, the only way God will ever be pleased with us is if we have the righteousness that he has, which is perfect, flawless, infinite, without end. This is what is credited to us, and this happens in an instant. It happens immediately. So sanctification, which is we are being shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ, Sanctification is progressive. The whole of the Christian's life is a, is a movement towards sanctification. It is a movement towards godliness, growing in godliness. Christian, I hope you look at your life and say, I'm not who I once was. I'm not just who I was before my conversion. I'm not who I was 10 years ago. I'm being transformed into the likeness of Christ. But justification... And the righteousness of God that it credits is not progressive. It happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. It is a, a pronouncement. It's an immediate transfer. It happens the instant that one believes. Abraham believed God in that exact moment. God justified him. One moment he was spiritually bankrupt. The next moment he possessed all the riches of God's grace because God had transferred them in that moment into his account. So Paul now continues in this, in this sort of accounting theme, highlighting the differences between wages and a gift. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We all know this, right? There's a huge difference between paychecks and gifts. We know how this works. If you go to work and work all week long, say you work in a factory in this heat, and you have to wear a mask on top of it, and you can barely breathe, and it's just torturous. And you work hard all week long, and at the end of the week, you get your paycheck, and in your paycheck is a little handwritten note from your employer saying, you are so very welcome for this generous gift that we are giving you this week. This is, our, just, this is our gift to you. Take, do whatever you want with it. Then you get home and you see your company has started an advertising campaign. And the centerpiece of that advertising campaign is your picture smiling from ear to ear. And the whole point of their campaign is just how generous we are as a company. Look at this generous gift that we gave. Look at how we treat our employees, the gifts that we give them, the kindness we show them. You would be rightly offended by that, would you not? Why? Because you worked for that money. They owed it to you. That wasn't kindness on their part. That was, that was their obligation. They had to give you that money. It was yours. But if I handed you that exact same amount of money right now this morning... Just because I wanted to bless you and show kindness to you, that would not be a paycheck. That would be a gift. I don't owe you anything. You didn't work for this. You didn't earn it. I didn't have to give it to you. And so if you are given a gift, you don't have any grounds for arrogant boasting. You see how strange that would be? If I just out of my kindness gave some of the people in this room a gift... And then you started looking at everyone else saying, look what I have accomplished. 
I have finally made it. I'm so much better than the rest of you. No, that would make no sense. It didn't have anything to do with you. There's no grounds for arrogant boasting when you have received a gift, and this is the only way salvation works ever. It is always by grace alone. Paul says it is God who justifies the ungodly. That that, that word there, ungodly, is a terribly offensive term. It literally means irreverent, wicked, one who has no fear of God whatsoever. And this is the state of all of mankind. It is our natural condition. This is the only kind of person that God saves. Wicked. Irreverent. No fear of God. Paul has told us earlier in Romans, haters of God. And so this is the first thing we have to know about ourselves before we can be saved. Before a man or a woman can be saved, they need to know this about themselves. Apart from Christ, we are vile. We are wretches. We are miserable, ungodly sinners. By the way, this is a very popular message in the world today. They love this message. They love it when Christians say this. No, that's not true. They hate it. They will call you a bigot. They will call you backwards. They will call you hateful. But here's what we've got to know. We've got to know this because of the things they're going to say about us. We've got to know this because of the names they're going to call us. That is the only kind of people Jesus saves. So if we preach, as many churches are preaching right now, this very morning, if they're open, they are preaching messages that are telling people, you're not vile, you're not wicked, you're wonderful. you got a lot of good things about you, you just need to come into all that you could possibly be. As if somehow God is just going to co-sign for them on being a good person. They're shutting the doors of salvation in people's faces. The first thing we have to know if we are going to be saved is that we need saving. God justifies the ungodly. He gives his perfect righteousness to to us, not through the instrument of our working, but through the instrument of faith. In him, it's the only way that it comes. What a sweet gospel promise this is. When you come to see yourself rightly, and that's part of what Paul's been doing in the first few chapters of Romans, is holding a mirror up to our face and holding our heads steady so that we can't look away. We see exactly what we're like. And this is a gift of God to us. It is a kindness of his grace Because when we come to terms with who we are and we call out to him for mercy, we come to him in faith. We look to him alone for salvation because we know it's not in us. He gives to us his righteousness freely. That great old hymn of the church, I think we sang it last week. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. How sweet is this gospel. John MacArthur says this, God's reckoning a believer's faith as his own divine righteousness is an incomprehensible but incontrovertible truth. It thrills the heart of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
When a penitent sinner is confronted by the majesty, the power, the justice of God, he cannot help seeing his own lostness and the worthlessness of his own works. By divinely given insight, he realizes he is worthy only of God's condemnation. But God gives divine assurance that through a sinner's faith in Jesus Christ, he not only will save him from condemnation, but will also fill him with his own eternal righteousness. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now in turning to David here, Paul's not leaving behind the example of Abraham, but he is citing David, Israel's greatest king, to establish that God's righteousness is credited only by faith and not by works. David was a great sinner, and he understood grace. The only thing David had in his account, in himself, was an infinite amount of unrighteousness and sin, just like everyone else who's ever lived. Think, though, of when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, taking another man's wife for his own, and then when he finds out that she's going to have a baby, he murders her husband to cover up his sin. When he's confronted with this, when the prophet sticks his finger in David's face and says to David after telling him this story, and David is, is righteously indignant at the man in the story, and the prophet says to him, you are that man. David knows in that moment he's got no righteousness of his own to appeal to. He can't come to God and say, God, you know how good I am. You know how I'm more righteous than everyone else. You know how my good deeds just so far outweigh my bad deeds. The bad things really aren't that bad. They're venial sins. No, he can't do that. He's got nothing to commend himself to God. All he had was to throw himself entirely on God's grace and mercy. And God in his grace and mercy to us has given us Psalm 51, which is David's prayer doing exactly that. David's great prayer of repentance. Just a couple of things he says. Psalm 51 verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's not, not calling out to God, have mercy on me according to how great I am. According to how valuable I am to you. According to how important I am. No, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. God, only you can do this. I can't save myself. I've got no hope in myself. It goes on verse 3, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He knows his helplessness. He knows that it would be just for God to punish him, to condemn him. And he knows that only God can justify him. He knows that only God can cleanse his sin. There's nothing David can do to atone for this. 
He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. For you will not delight in sacrifice, verse 16 says, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David knows there's no way for him to save himself. There's no way to atone for what he has done. There are no sacrifices he could make that would get him over the hump. He knew how great his sin was, and he knew how holy God was. If if we understood better who God was, if we understood the holiness of God, we wouldn't minimize sin the way we do. We wouldn't look at our sin and go, I meant well. I just did this. I know God will forgive me. It's his job. I'm sure he'll do it. We wouldn't say something so flippant, but that's what's going on in our minds when we sin. He knew how holy God was, and he knew he had one one option here, one hope, to cast himself wholly upon the mercy and grace of God. That's it. And so when, when David says what Paul quotes here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. When David says that, he knows what he's talking about. Consider the glorious blessing that he lays out here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The word forgiven literally means to be sent away. It's used in in some other passages when it talks about just sending someone off. Gone, never to be seen again. Our, Our lawless deeds, our iniquity, our sin separated from us Forever. Our guilt, our condemnation, our punishment, the eternity of hell that we deserve separated from us forever. How glorious is that? Maybe you've had something associated with your name. Are there those of people, when you hear their name, there's a certain thing that comes up. Their their iniquity, their sin, it's not separated from them. It is close to them. It is connected to them. And you can't think of them without thinking about that. And maybe you have things in your life like that too. But this is the blessing God offers his people, those who come to Christ and receive from him his righteousness. He says, whose sins are covered. As Paul quotes this here, the Greek word he uses literally means fully, permanently covered. Even God is not going to uncover them. Satan will try to uncover them. Satan will accuse you, but he will fail. You know what that's like to have Satan accuse you, even your own mind accusing you, where you're constantly remembering the sins of your past. Yet, from a holy God's perspective, they are covered. He will not uncover them. The blood of Christ has fully covered our sin, fully covered our guilt. Not not in the sense that they're hidden and brushed under the rug. Not that kind of covering, washed clean. 
How does this work in the life of the believer to be washed clean like that? We read this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so again, like we saw just a little bit ago, this, this drive in us, this, this drive in our culture, don't call people sinners, don't call them ungodly, don't point out wickedness, don't say these things, tell them the good things about themselves, everyone is basically good, that is shutting the door for salvation, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These two things pitted against each other. Our job is to uncover our sin, to confess it, to repent of it, to turn from it. His job is to cover our sin permanently in the blood of Jesus. What what sweet news this is. Our sin covered, the stain removed. The actions from my past that I feel still great shame about. Periodically, I'll remember something from when I was 16. And a flood of guilt and shame will wash over me. Things that I've said things that I've done. In that moment, Jesus is feeling none of those things towards me. They've been washed. They've been covered. He's not bringing them up again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The idea here is he will not ever count our sin against us. This word count, it's that same Greek word that Paul uses five times in this little passage. It's an accounting term. But for the one who has trusted in Christ, our sin will never be placed back into our account. There's only one thing. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have been given by him the gift of saving faith and repentance... There is only one thing that will ever be in your account again, the infinite and perfect, spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. No sin you have committed, no sin you will commit will ever be placed into your account. What sweet news. What glorious truth we see in this gospel. All that is there in the account of the Christian is the perfection of Christ. So the account history of the Christian looks like this. The first deposit made into our account was by our father Adam. His sin was immediately charged to our account as the the head of all humanity. Every person that would ever live, his sin immediately deposited into their account. We see this numerous places in Scripture. Romans 5 verse 12 will tell us that when we get there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. <coughs> Excuse me. Adam acted on our behalf. His sin was accounted to us. That's the first deposit into every person's account. The second deposit into every account is made by ourselves. Just as we saw in verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So deposit number one, Adam. Deposit sin, guilt, that's enough to condemn us eternally. Second deposit is we just keep adding to it. So we are born guilty, and we just continue to sin and make things worse. The third transaction in our account was a transfer for those who believe. On the cross of Christ, our sin was imputed to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that, that transfer that took place where on the cross our guilt, our sin, taken out of our account and placed on Christ, and the final transaction is the deposit of his righteousness made into our account. So our account has been emptied of sin, emptied of guilt, emptied of condemnation, and the believer's account now holds only one thing, the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so justification is much more than just forgiveness of sins. God clothes us with the spotless righteousness of his son. And then here's the amazing thing. That would be more than enough. That would be astounding grace. But God doesn't even stop there. He not only removes from us all sin, all guilt, he, he not only clothes us in the perfection of his son, he then rewards us according to that perfection that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve, that we didn't work for, that we would never be worthy of, but he gives to us the total eternal perfection, infinite perfection of Christ, and then he says, I'm gonna bless you according to that. That's what's in your account. He loves us. He embraces us. He, he fellowships with us. He qualifies us to be with him forever. Let's rejoice. What more could we have to rejoice in than this? God justifies the ungodly. What a glorious truth that is. God's not looking for good, hardworking people to save. God's looking for ungodly, wicked people who know of their own helplessness and need, who simply come to him empty-handed without any claim to merit, any claim to earning, who are fully dependent on the grace and mercy of God, knowing that God doesn't owe them anything, but trusting in his promises, trusting that for those who believe, he gives us everything. He doesn't owe us a thing, and yet in Christ he gives us 
everything that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind could conceive the great things that God has prepared for those that love him. That's not, that's not talking about how awesome heaven's going to be. It's talking about this right here. Our minds can't wrap around all that God has given to us in Christ. Infinite glory, infinite riches. Let's run to Christ and find this gracious salvation. There is no better thing you could do, friend, than to run to Christ. Christian, there's no better thing you could do than to meditate on these truths. This will, will be solid ground beneath your feet in crazy days. And I know some of you are very concerned about what's going on in the world around us. I am very concerned about what's going on in the world around us. This is where hope and peace is found. It is not going to be found in another hour of Fox News or another hour of CNN. This is where hope is found. Friends, let's meditate on these truths and let's be people of joy and boldness because of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, what could we say in light of such a glorious gospel but thank you? Lord, we have nothing to commend ourselves to you. We are holding on to your promises and we thank you, Lord, that your promises are so secure that you've even told us to come to you confidently like children, like sons and daughters. And so we do come, Lord, with confidence before the throne of grace, asking you, Lord, to to seal this work in our heart by your Spirit such that, Lord, it is on the tip of our tongues at all times. It is on the forefront of our minds at all times. That, that it is the lenses we view our world through so that our, our hope in you is not shaken when our hope in earth and its kingdoms is. Lord, we trust in you. Cause us to delight in you. Cause us to live lives of faithfulness that testify to the truth and goodness of your gospel. Make us faithful ambassadors in this dark world. Lord, we do pray that you would save this nation, that you would bring us to repentance for our great sin. Lord, that you would use us, your church. Lord, even us, Maple Grove, this little, little tiny corner of your church. Lord, that you would use us to accomplish your good purposes here in this earth. Make us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.